We all have a story to tell. Let's tell yours. Welcome to the Intellectual People Podcast with your host, Jason. Come together and listen to journey stories and more from interesting people. Welcome your host, Jason. Today on the Intellectual People Podcast, I have Dr. Dan Stock. How are you doing today, Dan? Just, just wonderful. Thanks for having me on. Great. And Dr. Stock, you're well known from a viral video that went uh, viral from a school board meeting. Is that correct? Uh, yes. Now, is it safe to presume that your children are students in that school board and that's why you were there? Actually, my son has grown. No, I was there just because I'm terrified of what's happening in my country and felt the need to speak out. Okay, very interesting. Let's go back. Um, did you always want to be medical doctor? Uh, ever since like my sophomore year of undergraduate. And how did that come about? What got you really intrigued by it? Well, I started off wanting to be a lawyer because I was going to put all the bad people in jail so the good people who deserve to have freedom could have it. And then I began to realize that was a particularly judgmental way to live the rest of your life. <laughs> and I've always been a science geek. And I thought, you know what? I really like people. I like science. This would be a lot more fun and less confrontational if I become a doctor. And uh, so it's been like that ever since. Okay. And general practitioner is what you do? I'm a functional family medicine physician. So I do family medicine. But I also tackle chronic disease with the intent of cure because functional medicine is kind of like the advanced. You, you would think medical school teaches you to cure people, but it doesn't. What it teaches you to do is to identify syndromes, physical exam and laboratory complexes and find the right drug to put them on. But it never teaches you to get down to the biochemical difference between what made them sick after they were healthy. Functional medicine does that. And so for a geek who likes to cure people, that's the way you go. <laughs> Why do you believe that the medical profession doesn't, isn't necessarily out to cure people? Well, um, in medical school, what we're taught is that certain data doesn't exist. Um, and for years, I believed that until people started showing it to me. <laughs> and uh, then I became a little disenchanted with, hey, there's a lot out there that all of the guidelines and the, and the things we were taught in medical school just go farther beyond this. Um, in their defense, there's this mantra that's used by traditional medicine taught in MD allopathic schools. It's kind of unspoken. That's, hey, if you can't prove it with 95% certainty, it's false and shouldn't be acted on. Uh, well, the problem with that is just because you can't prove it with 95% certainty doesn't mean it's false. Um, and because if you get very complicated diseases with multiple variables, you can never become 95% certain of, which means you'll never cure anybody. So if you're going to let that 95% certainty threshold keep you from acting, which we were taught in medical school to do, uh, then you never cure anybody. Um, you just use things to do 95% certain will make them 10% better. And you say, that's my job. Um, and I don't think most doctors are, have thought beyond that. And certainly they're punished if they do. Uh, so we have what we have. How long after starting to practice did you really re realize that you needed to change your way of thinking to help cure people? So I went into practice in 89, and I can tell you it was in uh, 1999 that doing everything I was told by all of my uh, guidelines and all of my teaching, I nearly let a 39-year-old man die from a heart attack. Love of God. I, at the last minute, something told me, said, let me send you home with nitroglycerin. And uh, it turned out that saved his life on Sunday night. 
all of his labs looked pristine. And when the cardiologist called me up to congratulate me for having saved his life, and I nearly passed out of the nurse's station because I damn near let him die, um, just got lucky that there was a rep for another test there who said, I'll bet his tests aren't normal if you do this test. And it was an advanced lipoprotein analysis of cholesterol transport. Did that. The man was terrible. They explained why he was wrong. And that's when I realized, okay, there's stuff going on. I didn't get taught in medical school. And it, uh, it slowly took me away from the management of heart attack and stroke entirely different than what I've been told and what all the guidelines said to do. And then when I finally got sick myself and got ridiculous advice from a local endocrinologist, uh, that, by the way, when I was found to have a testosterone level less than an 85-year-old man at the age of 37, and he told me it was my age. Um, <laughs> yeah, serious comment. And then I said, okay, I'm going to go do some more reading and eventually figured out what was wrong with me and uh, got that fixed. And after that, I was like, look, I started, uh, found out about functional medicine while I was looking for that cure for myself. And these guys had data that I was told didn't exist. But it was well-done research data. It wasn't published in major journals because the major journals are all paid for by the ads of drug and device manufacturers. And then I began to realize, oh, this is just a nightmare system. And I, I'm going to look elsewhere for my sources of truth, and I'm going that way instead. And that was the end of it in functional medicine thereafter. How does a current physician get into functional medicine? Because I would imagine that it's really hard, like yourself, to go through it, to figure it out, right? Is there has have the times changed enough in medicine that a physician can go to school, formal education for functional medicine? Um, there is actually one functional medical school in the country. I believe it's Arizona State University. And there is a fellowship you can take after you do your residency at uh, George Washington University in D.C. Um, you actually have two different groups that will train you called the Institute of Functional Medicine, the American Academy of Anti-Aging Medicine in Functional Medicine. I think the, the key holdup is you almost certainly have to quit taking third-party payment from insurance companies, governments, and employers. Uh, they pretty much have budgets that are set, and the guidelines are set to keep you on that budget. And uh, they will actually punish you for giving the advice that they don't want given or not giving the advice they do want given. And uh, so... Most doctors to do functional medicine uh, have to get out of third-party payment. There are a few who are trying to do it, but their visits have to be kept very short. And it, because functional medicine is a much more complicated analysis than what we were taught to do in medical school, it doesn't lend itself well at all to the idea of, hey, you know, you have to do this in six-minute appointments. Uh, most people probably don't know this, but uh, the government and insurance companies actually pay doctors better if they see 10 people for six minutes than if they see one patient for an hour. It's not even close. It's three times the amount of money. Um, and so when you're doing complicated work like functional medicine, it just becomes almost impossible to do it under the auspices of the third-party payment. You won't be able to keep the office open. Um, and eventually you'll probably get, if you're working for an accountable care organization like a health network, they'll fire you. Uh, so it, uh, uh, it's pretty much something you end up going off direct pay to your patients, which is what I do. And for the people listening that might not go to your website to look at your pricing structure, because it's all on there, which I will link below as well. Um, what is the rough idea of payment? Uh, so <clears throat> I'm, I'm paid everything on an hourly rate, but the hourly rate only applies to the time that I'm actually considering your case and giving you medical advice. So if I'm ordering a supplement for you or arranging a referral or getting your MRI set up, anything my medical assistant would do, you don't pay time for that. Right. It's the time that I'm geeking out with you here in your symptoms physical exam. And how much that hourly rate goes uh, depends on what you want to do. 
if you don't buy any membership at all, or what we call the $0 membership, uh, then it's $300 an hour. Okay. Uh, for people who like to buy in bulk, you can buy a membership. And what the membership does is it lowers the hourly rate for one year. But that's for as many hours as you can consume. So uh, for my people who are really sick, they usually end up buying one of the memberships. And uh, the $425 membership takes it down to $225 an hour. The $1,200 membership takes it down to $120 an hour. And the $1,800 membership takes it down to $90 an hour. And uh, so I have some people who just don't want to think about cost. And they get the $18 plan. It's like, yeah, that's why I never have to think about what I can talk as long as I want to think it cost me anything measurable. So, How busy are you, Dr. Stock? Uh, right now, I have a waiting list longer than my leg. This video, I had always planned for my schedule to, to the practice to grow very slowly um, because I'm, um, I don't like to be rushed. Um, I, I, don't, I can't stand giving less than all of my attention to a patient. Um, so after this video broke, I had to close the sign up because I had like 10 people signed up in the space of a day. It was like I, I had to contact them all and say, look, you, you signed up. I'm going to be your doctor, but it may be weeks before I can get you in. Um, most of the time my patients are used to being able to see me next day or day of, and, uh, I had to make sure the practice wouldn't grow so big. So yes, I'm taking patients, but I have a very long waiting list right now. Do you bring in any other docs to kind of mentor so you can grow your business and also grow the uh, technology, if you will, and with using your experience so you're able to spread that? Yes, as a matter of fact, there's a young lady here in Indianapolis area that I'm working with, uh, trying to get her to take on the job of treating chronic inflammatory response syndrome. It's not to build my business. Um, you know, even before the practice was full, um, you could realize that, look, it's going to get full because those of us who know how to treat chronic inflammatory response syndrome are few and far between. And there's a lot of people with chronic inflammatory response syndrome, and there ain't enough of me to fix them all. And so we need more doctors to learn how to do it. So I have a young lady who's kind of shown an interest in it. And I'm like, hey, call me at any time. I'll go over it with you. Plus, it's fun to have somebody to geek out with. Sure. Um, you know, it's a real tendency when you get into functional medicine to get this idea you know everything. You know what you call a doctor who knows everything? A liar. Uh, yeah. And, uh, so to have somebody that you can see, because you know, in functional medicine, we live in the 65 to 75% sure of what's going to happen. All right. And I tell patients that up front, um, there's going to be trial and error in this. Um, there's, we, we have all these variables fairly well put together, but not with 95% certainty because we can't, right. And we're going to get you through this path, but there's going to be some, some detours. And, uh, you know, if you get somebody else to work with, it helps you learn the detours because you got two of you studying the reality rather than just one of you. Sure. And so partners are good in that fact. And, I'm slowly eating my way into this young lady's brain, and I hope she's watching this website and knows that's what I'm doing. <laughs> Very good. Dr. Stock, so you let's go back to your viral video. There was a school board meeting, and I presume that COVID has really rubbed you the wrong way. Is that accurate? That's why I can phrase it to you. Um, I'm watching my favorite play toy used to beat people to death. That's scientific method. And uh, a little special background history on me. My dad was a bomber pilot over World War II, 35 missions over Nazi Germany. So I'm kind of a history buff about the rise of the Nazi uh, regime. And frankly, I see so many parallels for what we're doing right now. The control of the media, complete ignorance of science. Um, everybody's supposed to give up their personal rights for the good of the state, even though the state isn't going to give up any rights to them. 
um, the frank moving from misleading to frankly lying, um, the financial coercion and crony uh, capitalism getting worse and worse, and uh, to the point where it's like, look, if I'm going to continue to have the memories of my very brave mother and father, I have got to go stand up and speak. And you did just that. Yeah, I had some uh, neighbors who said, hey, Dan, uh, will you come speak at this thing? And it's my own school board. So it's like, look, you take care of the local thing first. And so it was like, hey, I know they don't know. Unless you're a real a pasty-eating science geek, you, you probably don't understand how misleading and how, frankly, uh, dishonest a lot of the statements being made are. And let's get into those statements. Which ones, or and feel free to elaborate on all of them if you wish, which ones really rub you the wrong way the most? Which ones really just are not what Dr. Stock thinks is really true? Well, it's the CDC's claim that there were no steps cut in developing these vaccines. So that people know how you usually develop a vaccine, uh, you'll have to do animal trials for at least two years. And that's because over time, vaccines can develop this condition called antibody-dependent enhancement, where the vaccine actually makes the body's immune system fight the virus wrong, and then eventually causes the development of some strain, which now the immune system actually makes you get more easily infected than if you've just gotten the straight infection. And it tends to develop nine months to a year into the program of vaccination. Um, so we always make the animal trials go out two to three years for that. And then after two to three years of animal trials, uh, what we'll do is we'll let them take a few humans put this vaccine to them and see where it distributes, what organs it gets into. We'll make them follow out those organs for a couple of years and see what happens to those organs. And if nothing bad happens to those organs, then we'll let somebody do a large placebo-controlled trial of humans, which has to be carried out for two or three years to make sure that the antibody-dependent enhancement isn't developing in them. And then after you've proven your vaccine isn't going to start hurting and killing people and doesn't have untoward side effects, you'll be allowed to market it to the entire human population in the United States. And uh, people were told no steps were quit, no steps were cut, and in fact, all of them were cut. Uh, what instead was done, all animal trials were completely abandoned. They took a group of human beings who were actually healthier than the average population. And the reason we know they were healthier, there were no deaths in the placebo groups, uh, not from no COVID-19 deaths. Um, if you use the most accurate way of, if you determine COVID-19 disease the same way we determine it for influenza and all the others, uh, the death rate's about 0.2%. You would have expected at least two deaths in the placebo group. If you counted in the very distorted way the CDC has been doing it, the death rate was about 2%. You would expect 20 deaths in the placebo group, but there were no COVID-19 deaths. Uh, so you took this very healthy, relatively healthy group of people, you uh, tested them for only three months, and then you vaccinated all the placebo group. And so that way you'll never be able to prove with 95% certainty that ADE is developing. And because you took a very healthy group of people and only took them for a short period of time, you're not gonna see all the side effects of the medicine develop. Um, and then this was told to people that, hey, we didn't cut any steps. The reason we got it out so fast is we started all the production stuff at the same time we started the research, which you, you can't speed up 10 years of research by getting the production ready. So this was just a blatant lie. Uh, that we didn't cut any steps in this. It was just a blatant lie. And there's no other way to phrase it. And who does that directly go to, in your opinion? Well, the CDC, the NIH, and the FDA. Uh, they're the federal government bureau bureaus who are colluding to do this abomination of science. Um, 
you know, these are the ones who've come out and said that, hey, look, uh, we didn't cut any steps. They're the ones who are ignoring all the signals of side effects. They're the ones who are ignoring all the signals that ADE is developing. Um, and I have no other way to phrase it than just it's ignorance at this point. As I tell my joke is you can only get so stupid for free. Um, and uh, the, the data is lining up. I say we can't prove with 95 percent certainty, but anybody who says that it's not what's developing has got four fives on the table and is telling the blackjack dealer, give him a card. <laughs> and at this point, I would even say he's turned up the corner of one and you're not seeing an A. Um, <laughs> And it seems to be getting worse as time goes on, correct? Well, that's the nature of ADE. It's one of the strongest arguments that's out there for ADE. There's other arguments as well. Um, but yes, it appears that the antibody-dependent enhancement is exactly what's developing from the vaccine. By the way, people should know this is not a theory. Um, in the 1960s, there was a, a vaccine attempt made for respiratory syncytial virus. And back then, they didn't require animal trials. And so they took a group of kids, divided them in half, so gave some dummy shots and some um, vaccine shots. And actually the same thing was seen. There was early protection, followed by late worsening. And eventually there were more dead people in the vaccinated group from RSV than there, than there were in the placebo group. Mm. And then because uh, we didn't learn our lessons, they tried it with dengue virus in the Philippines not too many years ago and did the exact same thing. And I can tell you that in the animal trials for both the SARS and MERS coronavirus, were abandoned because despite using four different technologies of vaccine, all of them expressed uh, antibody-dependent enhancement in 20% of the animals they tested. Um, and it appears that it's, it's primarily attributes of the pathogen that determine whether you can do this without making ADE develop. Um, but despite all of the evidence that said this was going to go bad, they decided to skip all the steps and roll it out early, early way. anyway. And I, this is like I say, uh, uh, I won't speak to what the motivations are in this. There are other people who have spoken much loudly and done much better for thorough research, but it's clearly not a compassionate attempt to help the American population or the population of the world for that matter. And that was my next question, Dr. Stock, was what is the motivation to skip all the science? And the, that motivation, as you have noted, has been discussed many a times, even by doctors on this channel and many other doctors across the nation. Well, you know, you can only determine motivation when you're in somebody's mind themselves, which we can't do. Right. Um, the only thing I can tell people is even if it did eventually start out as a naive belief that maybe I can draw that fifth card and get under 21, there's no way that that's what's going on now. There was never any reason to believe that there was anything emergent about uh, COVID-19 that made us have to change the diagnostic criteria so we could inflate the numbers. That that didn't improve the situation at all. Right. Um, there was never any reason once we realized that we had inflated the numbers um, to have ignored all the warning signs that this had a very bad chance of success. Um, and to assume that the vaccine was good and therefore didn't need this extensive safety trials um, cannot be explained as naivete. It's not like we didn't have plenty of evidence that this was going to go badly. In fact, there was no evidence to believe it was going to go well. When it comes to mask wearing, because there's obviously, a, it's a very contentious subject currently with school starting. What is your position on that? Well, I think when you look at masks, you have to determine what the situation we're using it and what your plan with this is for this, all right? So if you have a population and you're gonna try and manage it the way the people from the Declaration of Great Barrington recommended, which makes sense, which is, hey, look, take all the people who are at really high risk, 
We're going to lock them away. We're going to put masks on all the people who care for them and take all the things we have to do for those masked people so they can survive the consequences of masking, all right? And we're going to try and isolate these people if they want to, not against their will, but if they want to. And then the rest of us are going to go get sick, get our development of a herd immunity, and that'll reduce the transmission point. And then maybe some of these people will die for something else before they die from COVID-19. This is a reasonable application of viral avoidance mechanisms. Um, however, um, it doesn't explain why you would do it in the general population. We knew very early on that these things had animal reservoirs. At least three of the species are domestic, which means you're not going to get away from this virus. And we had no reason to ever believe a vaccination program was ever going to make this virus go away. All right. So every human being is either going to get viral, get uh, immune competence, either through vaccine or non-vaccine means. Um, you were going to get this. Um, therefore, viral avoidance never made any sense unless you were going to play the focus protection thing of the people um, uh, of the Declaration of Great Barrington, which was a reasonable thing to offer those at high risk. That, hey, you can quarantine yourselves away. The rest of us are going to spread this sucker until we've got immunity and we can reduce the transmission. And maybe you'll be able to dodge the thing a little bit longer, a little bit better. The only other reason you would ever do it is if you're willing to do viral avoidance measures for the rest of your life, because you're not going to be able to get away from the virus. Right. Um, none of, there's a reason we don't do this with influenza and the common cold, because viral avoidance measures won't work. Even if you look at somebody who's talking about the, the, uh, you know, the cloth masks, barely even stop the big droplet particles. But these the viruses like this are shed with um, what are called aerosol particles, which are smaller than will go through any mask. And, and, and frankly, um, the N95 mask, even if you don't keep the gaps around it, so that they're less than three centimeter, uh, three square centimeters, the resistance of the mask to breathing makes it all go around the gaps and come out. Almost all the surgical masks have more than three centimeters of gap on them. And so the, the air is all going out the sides. It's not going through the mask. Right. The mask is only useful for stopping droplets, but there's a beautiful video um, by uh, Dr. Stephen Petty, which shows the 99.9% .9 of the virus is coming out in the aerosols. It's not coming from the droplets. So the idea that this is ever going to make a difference had already been disproven for the transmission of this kind of virus in influenza. Back in 2008, we had studies that showed they made no difference. Um, in fact, there were two different reviews paid for by the CDC to look at this that said generalized use of these, these measures in the population appear to make no difference. Um, but this was ignored and said, we're going to do it anyway. Meanwhile, the data that's now being collected on COVID-19 suggests these mask mandates and these like, quarantining mandates and contact testing made no difference. Um, right. Again, to get to contact testing and quarantining, um, you know, this, this works well for something like gonorrhea. Um, where transmission is hard to do. It's easy to trace. Um, when you have something that's got a long incubation period and animal reservoirs and a high asymptomatic rate, somewhere between 50 and 70% of people get infected with this virus, never even know they have it. I seroconverted, never even knew I had it, never had a moment's illness. <laughs> when you've got that kind of response to it, the, the idea that you can do it with contact tracing uh, and quarantine is, is, frankly, it's laughable. No one who understood epidemiology would have ever thought this was reasonable to do forever. And so you were going to do it until when? Unless you were trying to get the population set up for some particular treatment that you had in mind, you would, um, and you would have announced that from the very beginning that you, hey, we think we can do this. Certainly, you wouldn't have thought it was a vaccine from the history. Um, and certainly, even if you did think it was a vaccine, as the data started to come out, that we could actually get people natural immunity with great safety using other measures. 
uh, like uh, vitamin D, uh, 25-hydroxy vitamin D, ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, zinc, quercetin, inhaled steroids. Um, then it immediately it should have changed from the, look, there's no reason to do that. We should do this. Um, but none of that response has been seen from the CDC, NIH, or FDA. Why? The opposite response has been seen. Uh, they, they have colluded to make sure you can't get your hands on these other things. Right. What is your opinion on why? Well, that gets back to motivation. Um, and the only thing I care to say in that is you can only get so stupid for free. Um, certainly there have been charges made that people have, um, uh, patents on things that give them financial conflicts of interest. We know that the Biden Bill Act of 1984, because I actually looked that one up and read it at the federal register. And yep. It does allow the people at the NIH and CDC to take our tax dollars, do research on stuff, get patents on the stuff they've researched and profit from it. Um, and I can tell you, I know at the FDA, um, the way things work at the FDA, because I've had interactions from two different angles with the FDA, all right? Um, one third of all of the uh, income of the FDA comes from the fees and fines they collect from drug and device manufacturers. Most of that from the patent side of drug and device manufacturers. So if that industry goes away tomorrow, everybody at the FDA takes a one third pay cut. Um, probably the worst thing to know is that at the FDA, the big payoff is after you've cobbled along the industry long enough, um, then you get to go leave without any cooling off period and get a very, very high paying job helping them interact with your, your successor at the FTA, um, making lots more money that way than you'd ever make as a public servant. Um, so there are just all kinds of perverse financial incentives all over the CDC and NIH and FDA, as we know about Washington in general. After all, lobbyists run the whole city. Um, and I don't think there's anybody who can rationally say that isn't true. Um, that one would have to suspect the, finance, the, the motives are primarily financial. There's other motives as well, and that is to understand that, look, there may have been crimes committed in this. For instance, I know a lawsuit has now been filed against the CDC for changing the diagnostic criteria for COVID-19 in March of last year without having the required 60-day comment period, mm. uh, which I'm told was in frank violation of the Federal Regulations Act. Um, not the first time that law has been frankly ignored, as I've seen in this, if that's correct. Can you expand on that, on what it is? Yeah, so the, the CDC sets regulations of how you're going to report diseases to them. And right. any regulation, you can't just change willy-nilly. You have to have a 60-day comment period so that people like me can call up and say, what you're doing is really retarded. Stop doing that. Um, and uh, when they changed the reporting criteria in March of 2020, they just ignored the 60-day comment period. Just changed it. Right. Um, and, and changed it in the most deleterious of ways that would have done – it would have greatly expanded the number of diagnosed cases and reduced the number of influenza cases, which what turned out to happen. Um, and, um, you know, when you see people breaking the law, um, you have to ask yourself, geez, why are people breaking the law? You know, this isn't something that uh, just happens on a grin. Um, so, you know, the, like I say, motivation is something will work out in a court of law. Um, but I can say the motivation is not the use of science for the betterment of the people of the United States and the world. Do you have patients, Dr. Stock, that have gotten the vaccine that are really ill because of it? Yes. As a matter of fact, I have more people who've suffered from the vaccine. I've had one person I know of who's gotten the vaccine and not had consequences. Out of many patients? Very few of my patients get vaccinated because we had a long conversation about it. And when we discussed the alternatives to it, and that combination therapy doesn't appear to be any better than the alternatives to it. They choose the alternatives. However, 
I have had people for financial coercion and social coercion purposes who have taken the vaccine. I've had one to date who hasn't had a consequence from it. All the others have had some consequence, including uh, one young lady whose MRI now shows that she has MS. If she had symptoms from it, she'd be diagnosable as MS. Um, I have another gentleman who had perfectly normal thyroid tests done one week before he took the vaccine and then rapidly developed hyperthyroiditis. I have a person who's had chronic migraines since it developed. I have another gentleman I just picked up who is still apparently doing something with his clotting programs because he has an elevated deep dimer and shortness of breath, and I can't get him off ivermectin. He's now dependent on this stuff. What do we do with companies that are mandating that their employees get vaccinated? Well, the first thing we have to do is educate them, first of all, about the science, and second of all, how they are probably being played as the patsy in this. So the, the first thing they need to know that they're of the opinion that somehow if we vaccinate people, we're going to prevent spread. The data is already out there now. We've developed this Delta variant. The Delta variant actually is better at infecting vaccinated people than it is of people who've already recovered. All right. right. It's not really all that close. It appears they're shedding about 250 times as much virus. One study I just heard about but have not read. Uh, they're shedding a thousand times as much virus. We have a biochemical explanation why it's happening. Uh, the federal government has come out and said it's legal for you to mandate these vaccines, but employer, you are responsible for all the consequences this vaccine causes. So the number of autoimmune diseases we're up to has already gone to Ray syndrome, acute transverse myelitis, and acute disseminated encephalomyelitis. Um, those are just the autoimmune diseases we know of. We also got inflammatory diseases, Bell's palsy, uh, myocarditis, pericarditis, uh, thrombocytopenic thrombosis. Um, and the federal government's already admitted that employer, if you mandate this, you're on the hook for all those bad things that happen. If we then add to that all of the extra cases of COVID-19 that develop because we've got made people take a vaccine that develops ADE. And by the way, it won't just be the people who get in, who had vaccinated who will get this. You'll actually see them shedding more virus and there will be more of the naive people who will come down with COVID-19 because they will get a dose greater than they would have gotten had the population not been vaccinated with an ADE-causing vaccine, all of which will then fall upon the employer to pay, not on the government, but on the employer to pay because they now took liability on this. And I think that's the part that most employers don't know. They don't know that, hey, look, you're being told that you might get in trouble if you don't, you know, if your people aren't vaccinated and one of your employees or one of your clients gets COVID-19, you might get in trouble and they're being told well, the vaccine won't prevent that anyway. And by the way, you're on the hook for all the bad things this vaccine causes. So the misinformation is not just for the general public. Um, I think businesses are very misinformed as exactly what the vaccine could do, couldn't ever have done, what it's almost certainly doing. Um, best we can tell, like I say, nobody has a 95% certain study because it's never going to be done. Probably not possible to do right now. But the best evidence is, and I would testify in a court of law, um, back I'm going to be testifying in a court of law um, that that's exactly what's going down here. And, you know, Mr. Employer, you're going to be the guy who gets to be on the hook for this. You took the government's advice. Can you talk about the case that you're going to be testifying in? Yes, there's um, at least uh, two families that are employed by a local pharmaceutical manufacturer who's mandated the vaccine who are going to be terminated, we're told. And uh, another family from that same employer who is probably going to join the suit as well. And, um, you know, I'm testifying against the facts that uh, are the matter at the, at the heart of the matter here. In fact, I, uh, 
as I talk with the attorneys, I say, I think it's great that you argue this is a violation of somebody's rights, but probably the best argument to make is the decision to require vaccines is capricious and arbitrary. Uh, if you actually ignore the CDC and look at the data, I don't think there's anybody who would reasonably conclude that there was great certainty this vaccine was going to make this virus go away, prevent infection, and not have side effects. How long do you think that this will last for? Well, the way all infections always go is until the population has either died from the disease or developed sufficient immunity. A lot of this depends on how quickly we generate new variants through the vaccinated and how many different, I mean, there's a limit to the number of variants that can come out that will trigger ADE. Um, Delta is clearly one of them. Who knows what will come next? I heard just the other day that somebody's got another variant that's a derivative of Delta that's doing it. Um, you know, it's hard to say. My, I can tell you my prediction is that as the vitamin D levels start to drop over the winter, that probably we see um, terrible outbreaks across the United States. Directly related to low vitamin D. Yeah, there's actually early on in the pandemic, we had data that showed that if you graphed the risk of death versus the 25 hydroxy vitamin D level, that's the active form your liver converts vitamin D into. If you graph the risk of death versus the 25 hydroxy vitamin D levels, the vitamin D level went higher. There was a linear decrease until you got to a level of about 45 and it started to level off. And at 55, you had the lowest level of risk you could get. And that was one quarter of the risk of death of the general population. Since that time, there's actually been a placebo-controlled, randomized, blinded trial of 25-hydroxy vitamin D versus placebo, given on top of hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin, which would reduce the ability of 25-hydroxy vitamin D to show benefit. And it was 90% successful at reducing the admission to the ICU, um, highly statistically significant. It worked even if your blood pressure was high or low, whether you're diabetic or not, whether you're old or young, whether you're fat or thin, worked equally well. Um, and they actually kept death data in that one. Um, of the 26 people in placebo, there were two deaths. Of the 50 people in the treatment arm, there were zero deaths. Wow. Um, now, I, I don't want anybody to think that means that it, we know with 95% certainty that 25-hydroxy uh, uh, reduces the risk of death. We don't know with 95% certainty. However, I will tell you that's better data that 25-hydroxy uh, vitamin D reduces death than we have for any vaccine to date in a placebo-controlled randomized blinded trial. Is vitamin D, for those that are listening, is vitamin D for bad, and I say bad, not proper for anybody in particular, or should everybody be taking vitamin D? I haven't run into a human being yet that I think a long-term treatment of vitamin D is in any way contraindicated. Um, if you have hyperparathyroidism, some of the ENT uh, surgeons who are the best ENTs at doing this uh, won't take you to the operating room until you've stopped vitamin D to prove that's not the cause of your high calcium level. I'm still twisting their arms to convince them that vitamin D never causes high calcium level, but you know there's a lot of retraining to do there. So I will take people off of 25-hydroxy vitamin D if I need to get that tumor removed for them for a short period of time. Um, other than that, it's hard for me to imagine somebody who would be harmed by vitamin D. And, and by the way, that's not just an opinion. Um, I can't count the number of times we've done a study with vitamin D versus placebo. I have never yet seen a study where the side effects were not less in vitamin D than in placebo, mm. meaning that it's fixing other things than what we're studying in these trials. Um, and it's very hard to overdose somebody on vitamin D. Actually, we've seen studies of... Um, uh, 
10,000 international units a day for two weeks that don't cause toxicity. And I've never had to give anybody more than 10,000 a day to get their uh, vitamin D level up over 55. And in terms of a daily dose indefinitely, right, is, do you say 1,000 units a day or 2,000? What's your what's so your the, recommendation? Yeah. The optimal blood, it's whatever it takes to get your 25-hydroxy vitamin D level greater than 55, all right? Um, after you get past 110, you're probably not getting any, well, you get much past 80, you're probably not getting much benefit, all right? You're not getting toxicity if you get near 115, 120. Um, and so it's whatever you have to take to get there. The average dose that probably gets you there for the average human is probably around 7,000 international units a day. That's probably why Dr. Fauci's taking it uh, at that same dose. Um, uh, but that's the dose most people have to take to get there. And I tell people, as long as the level's north of 55, you know, I'm kind of more comfortable in the 60 to 70 range. Mine's 78. Um, people need to know that vitamin D is not a vitamin. It's actually what's called an autocoid hormone. Uh, the cells take it out of the blood. They take the 25 hydroxide of the bloodstream. They turn it into something so they can regulate many different cellular processes, including their inflammation response and the development of the immune system. And uh, because of what it does, uh, you're designed to make it with your skin and sunlight. But we were all designed to be naked cavemen to run around the equator of Africa 200,000 years ago. <laughs> so um, there's no food that will ever give you enough vitamin D. Uh, I always tell people, don't try and make it with your skin because you were designed to be eaten by a tiger by the age of 35. We don't find old cavemen. So skin won't make 85 years of vitamin D. Don't even plan on it. Uh, it's not designed for that. Use sun protection and just take a big supplement. Um, that's the typical dose I recommend for my people. With the caveat that I recommend everybody take 200 to 2,000 micrograms of uh, broad-spectrum vitamin K with it. One of the things vitamin D does is allows your body to resorb calcium. And if you don't have adequate vitamin K, your tissues can't handle calcium right. You'll end up with calcification. So I do recommend everybody takes 200 to 2,000 micrograms of broad-spectrum vitamin K along with that. And Dr. Stock, are there different quality of vitamins? Like you can go to the grocery store, you can go to your big box store and buy vitamin D in a capsule form, vitamin K, vitamin D, vitamin C. Are there different purities or is it really, since it's all regulated, by the FDA, whom we're talking about, is it all safe or are there better quality vitamins out there? Well, it depends on the vitamin you're talking about. You know, certain substances are so bloody cheap, nobody's bothering to cheat. So, for instance, I can tell you the uh, 5,000 international units from Sam's Club works. I've seen it raise vitamin D levels just like all my other vitamin D. Certainly, I tell somebody if you go to Ed's Vitamins, probably wouldn't do that. But, uh, there are many good makers of vitamin D. I think the key thing is to make sure that you're taking vitamin D3. Vitamin D3 is exactly what your own skin makes. Vitamin D2 is something that comes from plants. And we have data that says the body's not as good as converting that into the 25-hydroxy form. And you never get your levels as high using the vitamin D2. Vitamin D2 is only available by prescription. Um, and so I tell people, don't, don't do that. But other than that, you know, if your vitamin D supplement you found is making your level go up, then it's working. Not very many of these supplements are putting toxic stuff in there because that means you actually have to spend money and work hard to make something more dangerous. Um, and so we don't very often see vitamin D preparations that are toxic for people. Um, there are some, some manufacturers we've heard that, hey, you know, I don't have in there what I say is in there. Usually it's less, occasionally it's more. But if you're checking your level, you're gonna find out if it's more. And the side effects of vitamin D excess are nausea and taste perversion. It's not like you end up pushing up daisies someplace. So uh, 
you know, as long as you're checking the level, it's going to be pretty hard to hurt yourself. And you would recommend someone going for a panel, right? A blood panel to have their vitamin D checked, correct? Yeah, five to six weeks after you start your dose. Um, I have people get a 25-hydroxy vitamin D. Okay. I asked you before, but how, when do you think this ends? When do you think America goes back to what we thought as normal? Uh, as soon as we decide to quit tolerating our dishonest government. <laughs> you know, that, I don't know their way to put it. I think it's coming to that already. You know, I've been told there are 40 million hits around the world on that video. And that's not because I'm the best looking doctor, or the smartest man in the world. Um, it got those hits because most people already understand the government's lying to them and that it's doing things that are counterproductive and that science and logic can't explain this. Uh, the vaccines actually aren't working the way you're told they were going to work. Um, masking didn't make a difference in any of the places that did all these viral avoidance measures didn't do any better than the places that didn't do them. Some cases they did worse. Uh, the side effects were clearly worse. And I'm not just talking about the bankruptcy. Uh, in California, the excess number of teen suicides exceeded the total number of COVID-19 child deaths of all ages in 2020. Um, so I, most people are putting this together. Look, the government's something's wrong with the government. It's not helping us. It's causing harm. Um, here in Indiana, we're trying to get our legislators to take action to stop our federal government. You can probably see my button for the Convention of States, uh, which I would encourage everybody to strongly think about so we can actually reform this federal government to make it so it's not for sale anymore and not worth buying. Um, as long as it's got this much power, people are going to buy it because it's worth buying. Um, but until the American people stand up and say, look, we're done with this, um, which I suspect is going to happen because we're already seeing hospitals that can't get nurses to come work for them because of their mandate. Um, you know, I, you know, the one thing we keep talking about is, well, we've got 70 percent of the population that's taken one shot. Uh, but I think it's only about 50 percent fully vaccinated. Like, well, there's a reason why you're not getting the rest of it. The word's getting around after that first shot. A lot of people get sick and they don't go back for the next one. Right. And now they can't push this vaccine on anybody unless they financially beat it into them. And I think you're going to eventually see um, people just say, look, I'd rather beat you than take the beating. And then they'll fight back their government. Injecting people with a third, fourth. I mean, it's like I keep saying to myself. When does it stop, right? When does the next booster stop? And you can't keep, I wouldn't think, I mean, I'm certainly no physician, but common sense tells me to keep giving somebody a booster shot for each new variant. At a certain point, you literally will be killing people by injecting them with a fourth, fifth, sixth shot, right? I mean, you can't every six months say, well, here's a new, new shot. Well, because of the way AD works, the worst thing you can do for somebody who's already developing ADE is get them a booster. You actually make their immune system do even better at making enhancing antibody and even worse at making cytotoxic T cells. You might get a few weeks of extra protection, but you would expect it to continue to get worse over time. And you, you continue to generate more and more of these variants that are able to make enhancing antibodies occur. And so the, the, the worst case scenario is to start giving these people boosters. Uh, and the research, people need to know the research for these boosters is going to be done every bit as badly as the research for the initial vaccine was done. After all, if this was really about making a safe vaccine, we would have not done what we were doing. We just said, hey, look, we're working on a vaccine, but ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, vitamin D, all this works, do all that. When we know this thing won't kill you, we'll come out and give it to you. But that's been abandoned. So the same superficial research we've done with the vaccines. As a matter of fact, the, the, the worst discussion I've seen about this has been well, you know, everybody in the hospital is unvaccinated. I tell them, well, yeah, but that's not really the question, is it? The question isn't, is vaccine better than nothing? The question is, is vaccine better than natural immunity? 
And so a study was published last Friday that answers this question with the Israel experience, where I think they're like 80% vaccinated. And they actually looked at people who had recovered from COVID-19 and compared their risk of developing a positive test, symptoms, or, or hospitalization compared to the vaccinated. And it came back and said, if you're just looking at the risk of developing a positive test, um, you're 13 times more likely to get a positive test if you're vaccinated or not. This is with Delta, by the way. 13 times more likely to get a positive test with Delta. Um, 27 times more likely to be to get symptoms with Delta. 6.7 times more likely to be hospitalized if you've been vaccinated and, you get to, and you're exposed to Delta. And then they said, well, okay, those are lousy looking numbers. Let's see how fast it's fading. And that was just comparing to people who zero converted in the last seven months. So they said, well, let's look at people who zero converted just back as a year and a half ago. And still the vaccinated were six times worse off than the people who were, who were exposed six, uh, a year and a half ago. And this is the best evidence there is for ADE. You have an immune system which is now working worse against the pathogen than if you had been natively infected. And by the way, all of that data is in people who were not having augmented natural immunity. Um, so you wonder what the numbers would look like if we'd actually given people 25-hydroxy vitamin D, which the FDA has banned from being compounded up in the United States, um, ivermectin being freely available, which right now if you're a physician and you write it, uh, you're getting fired. Your hospital is actually taking lawsuits to prevent a doctor from giving it to you. Luckily, two of those hospitals have lost their lawsuits already. Um, if we had been able to do all of these things like zinc and quercetin and hydroxychloric and ivermectin, 25-hydroxy vitamin D, those numbers would be worse because those are all treatments that aren't associated with ADE. They have side effects less than placebo as long as you use them, right? Um, and uh, those numbers for the vaccine would look even worse. Mm. Now, again, nobody's got a 95% certain trial comparing augmented natural immunity to the vaccines, and we'll never get that trial done. Right. Well, you know, in medicine, we don't get to sit on our hands just because things aren't 95% certain. We have to make our best guess on the data available. We already have a molecular modeling study that says, hey, you know what? Delta variant's really good at making enhancing antibody. <laughs> and so I told people, look, when you're adding up the data, what comes up to is don't take a vaccine, don't take a booster, get loaded on vitamin D and zinc, uh, selenium and iodine, uh, you know, make sure your iron levels are good. Um, do these things. Ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine if you break through, uh, quercetin if you break through, inhaled steroids if you break through. We got things we can do to make this non-lethal. The work that Peter McCulloch and the people at the FLCCC has done, um, well, I don't know that they've got as much functional approaches examined as those of us in functional medicine look at, but they've done remarkable work for this um, and clearly shown that this is not a disease that needs to be killing people on a regular basis. There's things we can do to stop this. And all these other things are less expensive, better studied, appear to have less side effects than the vaccines do. Um, right. One of the things that people... I've never really paid attention to on the vaccine. Um, when people are asked, you know, they say, well, the vaccine keeps you from uh, getting sick. I tell them, well, it prevents you from having a positive test and it prevents you in the short term from having as much risk of hospitalization. No data on death, but when you ask me about symptoms, oh no, the vaccine causes more symptoms than it solves. Uh, there's no question about that. Um, if you look at Pfizer's trial that it published, they prevented a little bit less than 170 cases of fatiguing, painful, febrile disease. And to do so, they had to cause two-pound cases of sore arms, 
approximately 11,500 cases of fatigue and approximately 6,750 cases of fever to prevent a little under 170 cases of disease. And that was in a highly selected, very healthy group. So I tell people it doesn't even prevent symptoms, guys. Come on, your, your risk of having symptoms is worse if you take the vaccine. And that's why you're seeing a bunch of people who got one shot and not doing another one. Um, and, you know, so we need to understand, look, it's a personal decision. I don't even want the vaccines to go off the market. You know, I'm a free market guy. Sure. But I do want the informed consent to be better. I want people to know the research has been done very shoddily on this. And research that would rule out the most damaging consequences of it has never been done. Uh, we don't really know how to stop. If you develop ADE, we're not sure how to stop that. We have some ideas, but if you ask me, do we have a study on ADE people showing 95% certainty that what we want to do works? No, we don't. How many years, doctor, do you think it's going to take for the totality of people, vaccinated people, to really show through with, with severe health issues? Um, I predict it by the end of the year. It'll be that soon. Well, the vitamin D, unless we start getting the population on vitamin D, get their zinc, slime, iron, and iodine taken care of. Um, these are all things that, before your specific immune system, the part of your immune system makes cytotoxic T cells and antibodies. Um, before that kicks in, you have this part of the immune system called the innate immune system, which is the major way you fight viral pathogens, especially pathogens like COVID-19, influenza, the common cold, that don't make most people get symptoms. Um, Things you can do to get that immune system so it's really ready to go, strong and able to fight hard, um, can make it so that you don't have to trigger and stimulate much the innate, the uh, specific immune system, which has been programmed to do so much of the thing wrong. Um, we have some hope that if we get these people taken care of, we can maybe prevent the consequences of ADE from the vaccine. Um, again, that's theoretical. I, certainly, it's our best gamble, I think. If we don't have those things taken care of, then you would expect just what we saw in the RSV and the dengue vax trials, that over time, the vaccinated get more and more problems with the infection that they're having, uh, shed more and more virus. Um, I don't want people to shun, to shun the vaccinated. After all, you're going to have to learn to handle this virus in your life, whether you get it from a vaccinated or unvaccinated or your dog. You're right. going to have to learn how to get over this. So there's no reason to shun the unvaccinated. It's a good reason to make sure you take care of your innate immune system. And I get that going. And I'm very worried what happens if we don't do those things for the population come the winter when the vitamin D levels start to drop. Um, I see very bad things happening. I, I hope I'm wrong. I'll be happy to eat my comeuppance. But the experience that Israel's having right now, that the United States is having right now, what the research backs up is that I'm right. Why would insurance companies be pro-vaccinated or pro-vaccination if ultimately they're going to bear so much of a financial risk? Well, because they don't bear a financial risk. In the United States, we don't have health insurance anymore. We have a prepayment scheme for health care services. Um, so people need to know that one of the things that happened, the Affordable Care Act, uh, they had this thing called the medical loss ratio, I believe the term is used, that says, hey, if an insurance company doesn't spend at least 80% of the premiums it takes in uh, on health care stuff, then it has to refund the balance of the premium. So that means the way as an insurance company that you maximize your income is you want people to buy more and more and more health care because you're able to get 20% of that of what you take into coverage you can get, but you want to keep them on budget because if you end up having to spend 90% of the premiums you took in, you just lost profit. 
If you spend 75%, you got to give 5% back, all right? So that's why these guidelines are there. They're keep, to keep your doctor on budget. But what they really want you to do is buy a lot of health care, all right? Just make sure it's on the budget. Um, and so they don't care. Those raise the premiums. You know, we don't care. Um, we love it. If you all get sick and buy lots of stuff through me, I make lots of money. Um, so they have, I mean, they're, they're protected in this. I mean, I'm sure they, their lobbyists paid very well to have the Affordable Care Act passed. Uh, so they, they knew they weren't going to get hurt. This is like, yeah, I just got to be able to predict what's going to happen. As long as I can predict it, even if I can't predict it, um, because of the accountable care organization phenomenon in the United States. And for those of you who don't know what that is, about 15 years ago, the federal government had this bright idea uh, that what would make healthcare delivery so good is if we had everybody joined under one great big organization who employed everybody from the doctors, the nurses, the physical therapists, the transportation aides, and then everything would just be very, very efficient. So they said, hey, if you don't join an ACO, we're going to cut your reimbursement. I think it was 3%. If you join an ACO, we're going to give you 2% more. So everybody got employed by some big organization like a health network. But then they said, oh, that 2% extra you're getting, well, that's dependent upon you following the protocols. We're going to tell you what good health care is. And if you don't do it, we're going to cut your reimbursement. So most of these uh, ACOs here in Indiana, it's almost all of them, have a clause in the doctor's contract that if they fire him for any reason, he has to move 10 to 20 miles away from where he's practicing right now. He has to stay away for a year to two years. He's not allowed to tell his patients where he's going. He can't take his records with him. You know, as a doctor, your financial capital is the faith and access your patients have to you. So they can basically steal all the capital of your practice and make you financially start over. God forbid you're a young doctor. You come out with $350,000 in medical school debt. You go to work for one of these nonprofit ACOs. You work for 10 years, you get your debt forgiven. But if you work for nine years, 11 months, and 29 days, and they fire you, you get all $350,000 back. So you're an indentured servant. And I tell people, you, you think about doctors as somehow being wings out our back and halos over our head, sacrificing ourselves for you. Well, we didn't do that with COVID-19, did we? I mean, the government told us to all hide away and everybody went running for the hills. Um, you make a doctor choose between his family, and he might sacrifice himself, but you make him choose between his family and his patient, who do you think wins? Well, I got to tell you, patient, it's not you. Um, in fact, people need to know the reason I'm doing what I'm doing I'm a direct pay physician. I don't work for an ACO. I don't work take money from insurance companies and governments. People pay me directly so that the only person who can threaten me is the medical licensing board. Um, but that's not true for probably 85% of physicians in the country. Uh, they have financial guns ahead. That's why they won't write you ivermectin because the FDA said that's off protocol. Don't do it. Same thing with hydroxychloroquine. Uh, that's why your, your pharmacy won't compound up 25 hydroxy vitamin D for you because they told them if you do it, it's a $50,000 fine. And we're going to take your license. Um, and so I tell people, you sit back and think about this. Does the insurance company have a reason to do it? No. Does the doctor have any ability to defend you? No. Is the hospital going to defend you? No. They'll go bankrupt. Um, you know, even the states now, look what uh, Mr. Biden is saying. He's telling the nursing homes, if you don't force your people to get a vaccine, he's not going to let you get any money out of Medicare and Medicaid. Um, nursing home doesn't get that. They're underwater immediately, and they all know it. Um, so you, I tell people, look, you ask me if this is the kind of behavior you want from your government. This looks like Nazi Germany's behavior to me. It doesn't look like my federal government, but at least not the government that my founding fathers thought of. For those that are listening and watching, 
you and your patients are in a very unique position. And it's mainly your patients who, from a financial standpoint, can afford to just pay you directly, whatever it is, and be taken care of. What do you say to those that are not so fortunate, that need care, and it's not to put you on the spot, right? But they need proper care, and they're not able to afford your care, right? Well, what do they do? For COVID-19, I tell people in the short term, call up the people at the FLCCC. That's the Frontline Critical Care Consortium, I believe is what their title stands for, for COVID-19. I think it's COVID-19 Care Consortium. Um, These guys have been helping people out. We know that they've written ivermectin for two people who've been subsequently sued the hospital because the hospital wouldn't give it and won. Um, These guys can help out. Here in Indiana, I can't take you as a patient because I'm just full on the state licensing board. If I start doing some of the other things, we'll be able to go after my license. And then wouldn't be able to help my own patients. Um, plus, there's just not enough of me. We, I, we're probably still getting uh, 30 emails and phone calls a day from people who are desperate to get a letter of exemption or get treated with ivermectin. Uh, that's down from 600 a day for the first two weeks. Wow. Uh, people, I had to change the outgoing message to let them know what my limitations were. So I, I definitely contact the FLCCC. Um, frontline doctors can be helpful. In the short and in intermediate term, I tell these people, contact an attorney. Uh, suits are forming all over the place to fight back on this arbitrary and capricious decision, mandating vaccines, mandating uh, mass and viral um, avoidance mechanisms. Uh, join a lawsuit. But most importantly, I would tell everybody, call your state senator and state representative. Um, the Article 5 of the Constitution, the founding fathers realized this federal government would one day become corrupt. And so they have mechanisms there by which the state legislatures can fight back both in the, in the moderate term and in the, in the long term. So for instance, here in Indiana, we can pass a law that makes it illegal to discriminate on the basis of a vaccine. Now the employers actually have a reason not to go ahead and do that. We can actually pass laws that make it illegal to enter the opinions of the CDC and the FDA and the NIH into a court of law and a negligence trial. Um, basically the NIH and FDA and the CDC are saying that we're gonna serve as a free expert witness for you. And it would basically say no, we're actually going to get down and debate the data. You're not going to get a free set of credentials to do this. You're going to have to debate the data. Um, you know, after all, that's where the, the strength is at. Um, we can have laws that allows us to reimburse our hospitals so that they don't go bankrupt when the federal government bears its teeth at them. Uh, we can have laws that make it illegal to put a non-compete, non-contact clause in a doctor's contract. That's all for all the lawyers have that in their contracts. You can't do that to them. Um, you know, that way the doctor is free to, that he can leave the hospital if the abuse becomes intolerable and he can start his own practice. Uh, we can actually pass laws that say we're going to pay the fines of a compounding pharmacist if the FDA fines them. Um, that Nope, we'll just pay your fine for you so you can compound up 25-hydroxy vitamin D. And then most importantly is the Convention of States. That's the long-term solution to this. Uh, with the Convention of States, we can actually take power back from this federal government. We can reform it so that it doesn't have nearly the power that it has. We can make mechanisms so it can never get it again. Um, and we can even use that mechanism to reform our campaign finance and election laws so the lobbyists can't buy candidates anywhere. It's fantastic. Dr. Stock, is there anything that I haven't asked that I should have or that you would like to share? Oh, boy, you've been very good to let me mouth off for a very long period of time. I guess I would tell people, please don't hate your physician and your hospital over this. They're pawns in this game. Um, most doctors don't like the fact they're caught in this mechanism. Um, they think they'd like to get out. 
doctors have been retiring in droves for years. Um, and I tell people, uh, take action against the system. In fact, I even hear people saying we need to shoot Fauci. And I tell somebody, look, he'll just be replaced with another guy who's got the same conflicts of interest. If you don't fix the system, you can worry about going getting the villains later, but the system needs to be fixed. Our federal government is way out of control. It's for sale. It has way too much power. This is where things come down at. And this may even come to nonviolent civil disobedience. Um, in Switzerland, I read that the uh, police union told the uh, government we're not going to enforce these laws anymore. I would encourage police departments to do the same thing. Uh, the uh, police uh, union in New York City told the mayor, if you make a mandate, uh, you, you're, getting, you're going on strike and you're getting a lawsuit. Um, and so we need to have this fight back. I feel worse for our people in the military. But even there, I hope that the cool heads will prevail or that our people in the military will realize that they took an oath to the Constitution, not to the federal government. And if they feel their constitutional rights have been violated, that they agree to stand up and uh, refuse to take this vaccine. You don't have to refuse all the orders, but you can refuse this order. Uh, Nonviolent civil disobedience is the last thing that happens before revolutions break out. And I'd really rather not see a revolution. Um, the American Revolution is the only one that worked out well. Um, I like to call the Convention of States Revolution 2.0. It's the one that goes right without, without violence. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Stock. I really do appreciate it. I appreciate you sharing your experiences. And for everybody, go please check out purehealthmed.com. And Dr. Stock, so people don't inundate your inbox, is there anything in particular you would like to say about that? Yes, I, I encourage them to, you can email. Um, what we're forming is a nonprofit that we can start uh, spreading the word about how to do this. And you can email us at medicalfreedom, the numeral four, all at protonmail.com. Uh, our Facebook page is uh, Cyril and Dorothea's Foundation for Medical Freedom. Um, and we're uh, hoping to have things set up on uh, uh, with that nonprofit shortly so that we can actually start uh, financing uh uh, a website for people in general. Um, you can find us on Rumble at uh, Medical Freedom Dr. Stock um, and on Getter at, uh, at Dr. Stock Freedom. Those are all the monikers and ways you can contact us now. We have a, our YouTube channel is uh, Health Freedom for All 2021. How long that'll be up? I don't know. I like telling people, I found out a couple of weeks ago, um, when I started my practice up several years ago, I had a, a social media consultant said, oh, you've got to get on Twitter and all the social media. So, OK, I get an account. Um, I found out a couple of weeks ago that uh, Twitter banned me for violations. I have never seen sent a single tweet in my life. <laughs> and I got banned on Twitter for violation of rules. <laughs> you know, I say censorship is the work of cowards and dictators. Uh, people who aren't afraid of the debate don't censor. Amen. Thank you again, doctor. I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much for helping me spread the word. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. Find us on YouTube and Facebook at the Intellectual People Podcast and online at the intellectualpeoplepodcast.com. Check back for exciting new episodes.